Welcome to Come Away By Yourselves. I am Father John Grico, and today we're doing something a little bit different. Usually we offer meditations for personal prayer on this podcast, but I gave a class on Zoom to a group of women at a parish close to where I live here in Boston, Massachusetts, and I thought maybe it would be beneficial or helpful for some people to have access to the audio of that Zoom class. The topic of the class was explaining the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. The audio isn't great, but I think it's I think it's uh, good enough. I hope so anyway. In any event, I hope you enjoy this class and thank you for listening to this podcast. If you uh, want to support the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Apparently that helps a lot for more people to have exposure to this podcast and others. I also recommend if you like this podcast and these meditations, this content, there is a similar podcast made by priests of Opus Dei in Manhattan called Meditations in Manhattan. So if you just search for Meditations in Manhattan, wherever you listen to podcasts, you'll be able to find those podcasts as well. Thank you and God bless. So we have a great topic today, explaining the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And so we ask the question, why? Why do we believe in the real presence? And I think the first thing to um, remind ourselves, the first thing to get across is that it's truly a matter of faith, right? And what is faith? Faith is to assent to the truth of something on the testimony or the word of another. So we distinguish um, believing something is true uh, from knowing something is true because of evidence or because we kind of worked it out for ourselves. When we believe something is true, we believe in the testimony or the word of another. And that's important, right? Because with faith, we have access to truths which may be important to us uh, for our salvation or just for our daily life which we wouldn't be able to get ourselves, right? So if you want to know what the weather is like in Hawaii, well, it takes trust in the source, right? You trust your the phone, you trust the people who are putting the information to uh, the weather channel, um, you trust people who are there relaying this information to other media or sources. I don't know why you'd want to know what the weather in Hawaii is like, but if you did, right, you would have to trust, um, you would have to trust that information. In the letter to the Hebrews, faith is defined as the conviction of things unseen. And so there are things that are real that we only have access to when we trust the word of another. Grace, right? We can't see grace. You can't measure grace, but it's real. and We trust that it's there. That fact that God is a trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? We trust that because it's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist is one of those. So why do we believe this? It's one thing to say we believe it on the word of another, um, but why do we believe that? Where do we get that doctrine from? Well, really it's because we believe in him. We believe in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ said this and we believe in him. We trust his word. And how do we know that he said this? Well, there are ancient historical documents called the Gospels, 
and the epistles of St. Paul. And it's a very important thing to, um, to have this straight uh, as Christians, that the, um, the Gospels and the epistles of St. Paul are actual historical documents, right? They're written by people trying to transmit what they saw and believed actually happened, right? That they saw themselves or heard from other people who were eyewitnesses. There's a wonderful book on this. At one point I'll share, um, maybe in the end I can, I can uh, send a comment with a couple of book titles, but there's a wonderful book on the historicity of the gospels. It's called The Case for Jesus or The Case for Jesus Christ, either one, one or the other of those. And it's by a, a scripture scholar named uh, Grant Petrie, P-I-T-R-E. Um, and I'll share that. But he makes this wonderful case that just looking at the Gospels as historical documents or as literature, you see that they're just as historical as um, any other historical document that we use to know ancient times. Um, and so that's important, right, that these are written uh, by people who are actually trying to tell us what happened, right, what they saw happen or what they heard others say happened. And so what do we see there? What do we see in these accounts? These documents contain descriptions of the Last Supper, which is the first Mass. And so in those accounts, Jesus takes bread and says words to the effect of, take and eat, this is my body. And he distributes the bread to the, to the disciples, the apostles who are there with him. And then later he takes a chalice filled with wine and says words to the effect of, drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so that's why, um, at the heart of it, that's why we believe that, um, that the Eucharist is really the body of Christ and that the chalice after the consecration is really the blood of Christ. Why? Because Jesus said it. This is my blood of the covenant and this is my body. Doing what? Holding bread and holding the chalice of wine. Saying what? Do this in remembrance of me. So from that time, right, from very, very, from the very first days of Christianity, the church has done that in, in remembrance of him with the same words, believing that we're doing the same thing. There's a great um, Eucharistic hymn. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, if not all of you, the Adorate Devote, who was written by St. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages. And this gets at this point. He says, sight, touch, taste are all deceived in their judgment of you, but hearing suffices firmly to believe. I believe all that the Son of God has spoken. There is nothing truer than this word of truth. Right? So if you just look at the, at the host after the consecration, what do your senses tell you? They tell you it's exactly the same thing as before the consecration. It looks exactly the same. It smells exactly the same. It tastes exactly the same. And so why do we believe that it's different? Um, only hearing, right? Because we hear the words of the church, the words of the priest, which were the words of Christ. This is my body, like this is the chalice of my blood. And we believe the words because we believe the source. Now, a further question, which many of you might be already asking yourselves, is why do we interpret these words so literally in the Catholic Church? One thing is to believe what Jesus says. Another thing is to think that he, he means these words literally. This is my body. This is the chalice of my blood, right? Many Protestants believe in the Bible as the word of God, the inspired, inspired word of God, but they don't interpret these, these 
these passages literally as the Catholic Church does. Well, here I think we need to, again, go back to the Bible itself, that the Bible itself and also the ancient tradition of the Church tells us that Jesus meant these words literally, that he literally meant, this is my body, and he literally meant, this is the chalice of my blood. What's the biblical evidence? Am I going too fast? How are we doing? This is okay? Okay. So what's the biblical evidence that, that these words should be interpreted uh, literally? This is my body, this is my blood. A big text is, is John 6, right? John 6, we have the bread of life discourse. There Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In the same discourse, he says, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And then he keeps saying the same thing, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, right? Truly, truly, like I'm not, I'm not fooling around here, right? This is, this is true. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so the people, we know the story, right? The people listening to this thought, this is crazy. What the heck is he talking about? How can we eat, uh, how can we eat his flesh and drink his blood? They totally don't get it, which is understandable. And so there ne- we see in the Gospel of John that there are negative reactions to the literal words of Jesus. First, the Jews. The Jews then disputed among themselves, we read, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day. Then, and then the disciples, right? when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that the disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Because of this, John goes on, I'm skipping around, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? And so what do we see here? We see Jesus saying that his Um, saying that his body is food and his blood is drink and people not getting it. Um, Some people leaving because they don't understand it. And Jesus doesn't say, wait, time out, time out, right? It was just a symbol. You know, don't worry. I'm not really, (laughs) I'm not talking about the reality. He lets some disciples go because they don't trust him enough to believe in this. And the reaction of Peter is the reaction of the church. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, so Jesus asked the disciples, do you also wish to go away? Or to his apostles. He asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter asked, answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter doesn't say, oh yeah, we get it. I understand. It's going to kind of, you know, it's going to look like bread and taste like bread, even though somehow really it's your, it's your body. Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about either. He doesn't say that, but, but he says, we believe you, right? You have the word of, et- of eternal life, right? We're going to stick with you and see how this plays out, okay? We're, we trust in you, and so therefore we trust in your words, even if we don't understand them. Another important text is from 
to St. Paul. St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians actually predates the, the, the writing of the Gospels. It's written in about 53 to 54 AD. And he's writing to the Corinthians about different church matters. And one of them, one of the that he addresses is precisely the Mass. St. Paul writes to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so Paul's description is very, very close to uh, the descriptions of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. St. John's Gospel is the only one that doesn't have an institution narrative, right? He's the only one that doesn't tell the story of Jesus celebrating the first mass, the last supper. But what St. John does is include the chapter on the bread of life discourse, which kind of fills out our um, New Testament theology of the Eucharist. And then St. Paul, after giving this account, St. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which is where we get one of those Eucharistic proclamations after the consecration of the mystery of faith. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then St. Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many, many of you are weak and some have died. And so what does St. Paul say there? He says, basically, you know, if you receive this unworthily, unworthily you are responsible for, for receiving the body and blood of Jesus unworthily, right? And this is 53 AD, um, one of the great um, first apostles of the church, right, St. Paul. Um, and, then, and then we get this, what, you know, the church now talks about as the need to be in the state of grace in order to um, receive our Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's we need to examine our conscience, make sure there's no serious sins separating us from God's, um, from God's grace before we receive the Eucharist. We should go to confession if we have a mortal sin, if we're not in a state of grace. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. And so there St. Paul is saying, you know, we shouldn't receive if we don't believe, right? Um, if you don't discern the body, well, then you shouldn't, you, shouldn't, um, you shouldn't receive. And so I think from the Bible, both from uh, the institution narratives where Jesus says, this is my body, also from, Saint, from John 6 and the reaction to his discourse on the bread of life, some of them leave and he lets them go. Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We're sticking around, even though this seems nuts. <laughs> uh, and then also St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, right, where St. Paul kind of very explicitly says, um, if you eat and drink unworthily, you are responsible for the body and the blood, which is what you're receiving. Okay, so that's why we believe this and the kind of scriptural, uh, scriptural argument for it. The fathers of the church, I won't go into that here, but the fathers of the church, right, the great theologians and bishops from 
the first two centuries of the church is all sorts of texts which kind of back this reading up, right? That the, that the church has always believed what Catholics now believe about the real presence. Okay, now here's a kind of another question that, that comes to our mind that we should talk about. Why is this not impossible, right? One thing is to say, okay, I believe it because Jesus said it. I believe it because the Bible believes it. I believe it because the church believes it. But why isn't it like just, in, you know, too crazy to, to believe at all? Why does it make sense? Um, number one, God is all powerful. So therefore, God can do anything that it, that is possible at all, right? And so it makes sense to believe that God exists. It makes sense to believe that God is all powerful. These things are, are truths of reason. If you do good philosophy, you can actually prove you won't be able to convince everybody, but you can prove um, with arguments from your mind, from reason, that God exists and that God is all powerful. So you can do anything that's logically possible. And so if God can make something from nothing, right, to create the world, he can also turn one thing into another. And this is what he does in the miracle of the Eucharist, or Technically, it's not a miracle, but it's miraculous enough. So if God can, can, can start with non-being and say, let there be this world with all these interesting things in it, right, from squirrels to chipmunks to, okay, anyway, I just saw a chipmunk this morning who was um, not too afraid of me. They're getting more and more bold anyway. Um, you know, squirrels and chipmunks to like LeBron James, right? Uh, to the, the Sierra Nevadas, right? To the Pacific Ocean, to the immense, vast expanses of our universe with billions and billions of stars, right? And billions and billions of galaxies, right? Each galaxy has billions and billions of stars. And there are like billions and billions of galaxies. If God can bring all of that and nothing, which he does, and he can, and we can prove that with philosophy. Um, well, then God can take one thing and change it into something else, right? So it's possible. It's not crazy to believe that God can change bread into his body and wine into his blood. That he turns one thing into another. Um, and that's, that's why we call it transubstantiation, right? Substantiation comes from the word substance, which means what is the thing, right? What is the thing and what is its nature that's there? And so we say the words of the Eucharist, the words of the consecration, transubstantiate the bread into the body of Christ and transubstantiate the wine into the blood of Christ. So that what underlies the appearances is really changed by the power of God, by the words of Christ and the power of the sacraments. And so this happens obviously in a special way. How does it happen in a special way? Well, it happens because it keeps the appearances of the former thing. So what now is the body of, of Christ still looks like bread, still tastes like bread, right? Still smells like bread. If you break it, you hear that crack sometimes in mass or when the priest breaks the, uh, breaks the host. It still sounds like bread if bread makes noise. <laughs> it still sounds like wine. Right? So to all of the appearances, to all of its access to our senses, um, it's still bread and wine. Uh, but what has changed is the substance, is the, is the reality that underlies the appearances, the reality that underlies what we call the species, right? Species and appearance are basically the same word. Okay, this is all very deep and, uh, and true and important. 
Any questions so far so I don't uh, lose anyone? You all know this already. You're all great people. And, all right. Okay, good. We'll just keep going. And so this is important, right? This is one of the reasons why communion is not cannibalism. And so in the early church, uh, that was a, uh, a kind of criticism of the church, right? Well, they're cannibals. They're eating the, they're eating the body of Christ. But one of the reasons why it's not cannibalism is because what's in touch with our senses is for all intents and purposes the same as it was before, right? And so it doesn't taste like a finger or um, like blood, right? Um, however, at times, this is, <laughs> this is wild, but at times there are these Eucharistic miracles. And if you're interested in Eucharistic miracles, the guy was just beatified, a young Italian, uh, Carlo Acutis. He's now blessed Carlo Acutis. And one of the things he did was he made a website which catalogs all of these, like, perhaps almost all of them, all of the um, certified kind of Eucharistic miracles. So what happens at times in the Eucharistic miracles is that the host actually turns, actually turns into tissue. And many times it's usually like heart tissue. And there was a miracle in Argentina where they, where they took a little sample of it and they sent it to some pathologists and, um, and they examined it and they said, yes, this is heart tissue and it's a heart that has suffered trauma. Right? Uh, and you, you know, if you read about this, it's amazing. And then, then they take the blood type and actually it's wild because all, all of the Eucharistic miracles, when they've looked at the blood type and they looked at the type of tissue, it tends to be heart tissue and all of the blood type is the same as if it's coming from the same person. And so at times God kind of in a miraculous way removes the veil of the appearances so that what is kind of, you know, really there biologically or physically is present. But then we don't eat that, right? I mean, you know, that, that's like, okay, it's a sign of what's always there, but that's not what we eat, right? We eat what still tastes like bread and is digested like bread and tastes like wine and is digested like wine. Um, okay, so another, another thing to remember here, very important, very, very, very important that I don't think is stressed enough when we learn about the Eucharist is that the body and blood of Jesus are no longer exactly like your body and my body. And so it's an exception when it turns into like heart tissue or whatever. It's just to help our feet, right, to, for what's really there. Um, but the body and blood of Jesus are no longer like our bodies in this physical, temporal dimension of life that we're in now. What are they? They're bodies in the, in, in the mode of the resurrection of Jesus. All right, super important. Um, why? Because if we, because if you took right the heart tissue and ate it, yeah, it kind of is like cannibalism, right? It's weird. Um, the resurrected body is is still a body, but it's different. And so we see this in the gospel. The resurrected body has special qualities. It passes through walls, but it appears suddenly and disappears suddenly. It still has the wounds of Jesus's crucifixion right, without being bleeding or like hurting him. And so the resurrected body is still a body, but it's become spiritualized, right? Scripture talks about a spiritual body. And so part of the spiritualization means that it has become something that's communicable, right? Something that's shareable in new and different ways. 
And one of the ways that the resurrected body is shareable is precisely through its presence in the Eucharist, okay? Uh, and, our, and, and therefore our ability to communicate with it through receiving um, him by eating, by eating the, uh, the consecrated host and drinking the consecrated wine, right? the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so uh, this is one of the ways that Jesus now becomes something that, that he becomes someone who's totally shareable to us, totally communicable to us. That's why we call it communion. Where else is the body of Christ shareable? Well, what else do we call the body of Christ? The body of Christ is the church, right? Uh, and so this is so important that John Paul II has a whole encyclical called Ecclesia ex Eucharistia, that the church comes from the Eucharist. And so how are we the church? Well, we all receive the one body, and therefore we're all united in Christ when we all receive the one body, right? When I receive Christ in the Eucharist, I become united with him, but there's only one body of Christ. So when you receive Christ in the Eucharist, you become united with him. And so we're united in the same body that we're receiving, right? There's only one body of Christ. The body of Christ is in the Eucharist. The body of Christ is the church. The body of Christ is present in its resurrected form in heaven, right? But there's only one body, the mystical body, the resurrected body, the body of Christ in the Eucharist in different forms, which make him shareable or, or um, we could say communicable. There's a great book. This is the book. It's a little bit beat up now since I've had it for a while. It's called God is Near Us by um, Joseph Ratzinger. And then he, all of this is from before he was Pope Benedict. But then, of course, Ratzinger became Pope Benedict. And there's a chapter in here where he talks about this. Uh, it's very beautiful. Where he talks about um, how the body, the body that we have now, kind of gives us a glimpse or an indication of how the body can become communion, right? How the body can become something that, something that we share with others or opens up our relationships to others. But the body now, in our form, is also a limit, right, that keeps us from each other. So where I am, you can't be. Where my body ends, right, your body begins. Um, and if I want to, I can hide from you, right, by moving my body and being quiet, right, and I can withdraw from you spiritually by using my body. Or I can, up, I can open up to you spiritually by using my body. I can touch you, I can talk to you, I can smile, right, we can hug each other. There's different ways that we can show each other that I want to communicate with you with you, I want to share my person with you through my body. Um, but also in this life, it's a limit. And so what um, Benedict XVI here in, this, in one of these chapters, it's a very beautiful chapter, it's called The Presence of the Lord in the, in the Sacrament, is he makes exactly the point, I stole it from him, <laughs> exactly the point that I was making before, that in the resurrection, what happens is the body ceases to be a limit, ceases to be something that we can also use to kind of like close ourselves off from each other and become something that's only shareable, that Jesus becomes existence in the resurrection. Jesus becomes existence purely for the other. This is my body for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And when he becomes existence for the other, his body becomes a means by which he shares his person with, um, with us. And so this is a point that, that Ratzinger makes also in a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy. Um, very beautiful book. I don't have it here, but um, I can read a little bit of that because I think it's wonderful. He says, um, Receiving the Eucharist 
does not mean eating a thing like gift, right? As if the body and blood were like a thing, right? Not a person. No, there is a person-to-person exchange, a coming of the one into the other. The living Lord gives himself to me, enters into me, and invites me to surrender myself to him so that the apostles' words come true. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Only thus is the reception of Holy Communion an act that elevates and transforms a person. He is here, he himself, the whole of himself, and he remains here. This realization came upon the Middle Ages with a holy, with a holy new intensity. Right? And so what's the point of that? The point of that is um, the body is the resurrected body, right? The blood is the resurrected blood, which means the body is alive, right? And the blood belongs to the body that's alive. And so in the, in the liturgy, we call it a, a holy and living sacrifice, right? A holy and living sacrifice, right? That, that Jesus is alive in the Eucharist, which means that he's present there, not just like, okay, here's a little, again, here's like his finger or his ear or whatever, right? He's present there fully, holy. And so there's a, in the Council of Trent, after the Protestant Reformation, the church had to kind of define these things more clearly because because the Protestant Reformation precisely called into question the, the validity of the sacraments and the scriptural authority or the scriptural origin of the sacraments. So the Council of Trent says this in the 16th century, in the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is really and substantially contained. And so there's a summary of that, right? That we believe that he's present body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And so when you receive him, you know, how does this work? Well, we say the host is the body, right? This is my body. And so the consecrated host is the body. The priest says the body of Christ, right? Amen. Um, but the body contains the blood, right? Because it's alive. It's a living body. The body is alive and therefore also has a soul giving it life. And so we have the body and the blood and the soul. Because, because soul is what makes body alive. Well, then we have Jesus' humanity. Body, blood, soul, therefore the humanity. But Jesus' humanity has been always connected to his divinity. It's always been assumed into the divinity by the mystery of the incarnation. And so therefore we also have the divinity. That's why we adore the Blessed Sacrament. Because Jesus Christ is present. And Jesus Christ is not just man, but God. right? The Son of God. That's why we genuflect in front of the Blessed Sacrament. That's why we try to be in the state of grace. Right? We try to be in friendship with God. We try to go to confession every once in a while, especially if there's a serious sin or a state of sin before we receive the host so that our soul is a, is a uh, prepared and adequate place for Jesus to come right? with, his, with his humanity and his divinity, which is basically right, what St. Paul says to the Corinthians, as we saw before. Let anyone who receives this examine himself before he receives. Otherwise, you're responsible or you're kind of, how does he put it? It's kind of scary. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord.
Okay, so that's a little bit of the theology of, uh, of the Eucharist, right? its scriptural origins, why it's not absolutely insane to believe that this is possible, relying on the power of God. God can change one thing to another. A little bit of explaining um, how it works, right? How it looks like bread, but can still be the body, how the whole Christ is there because of these connections, right? The body's connected to the soul, the soul's connected to, to the divinity, therefore you have the humanity and the divinity. As, as for, you know, our spiritual life, um, I think it's, I think it's, um, it's a no-brainer, right? I mean, I mean, think about it. We have Jesus, the same Jesus who died on the cross for us, who rose from the dead for us, who created us as God, um, who healed all those people who came to him, who heals that woman who just reaches out and touches the, right, the fringe of his garment with faith. We have that same Jesus in every single Catholic church. Whenever that vigil lamp is on, it's a sign that Jesus is present in the tabernacle. We have that same Jesus in every Mass uh, and the sacrifice in every Mass. We can receive him if we're, if we're well disposed. And so I think, you know, a kind of for our spiritual lives and our faith life, uh, a daily devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, to spend some time with him in mental prayer, to take time out, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to talk to him, to tell him our problems, to make acts of faith to receive him on Sundays and then if possible during the week to going to mass. But all of these things are like common sense conclusions if we truly believe that, um, that he was present there, which we do, right? Because we have the faith of the church. We have the faith of, of the apostles. Okay, that's a little bit shorter than, than I thought, but maybe we'll have some time for questions or comments. You can't throw tomatoes because, because you just hit your own... You just hit your own computer. Um, we wouldn't. We wouldn't want to throw tomatoes. It was absolutely. Uh, that would be fun, though. It would be fun to have. No, tomatoes. no, no. We're not the students. We're not the middle schoolers or second graders. Oh, they're the worst. Um, we need to. <laughs> you know, Father John, just kind of getting into questions a little bit. I loved how you said um, that faith is the conviction of things unseen yeah which kind of leads me into um one of the reasons our like core team of volunteers the women who kind of organized the program came up with this topic we're disappointed uh saddened to see that 70 percent of 60 70 percent i think it is of catholics don't believe that jesus yeah is really present and um we're just wondering how that can be or as a priest um your your reaction to that or um your recommendations to those of us um you know as mothers as aunts as sisters as friends um how do we try to change that with those that we love um yeah i think Sure, sure. Um, well, there's, there's, you're sneaky because you put about three questions in there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, how did it, I mean, how did it happen that only 70% believe this? That's a long, tough question, you know. Um, obviously, as a priest, or just as Catholic, right, that's uh, um, disconcerting, right, because this is one of the, True, tre true treasures of, of 
our faith and the true treasures of the church. Um, so what do we do about it? I think, I think, first of all, our example, right? That the more, you can't give what you don't have, right? And so the more we believe, the more we learn about it, the more we love Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, the more people see us making efforts to be at Mass and to go to church um, and not hiding that, right? Uh, the more other people will be attracted to it. And the more they see it makes a difference in our life that we come back more peaceful and that we have a lot of we have more optimism faith and charity for people and it's connected to our prayer life well yeah those around you will will know that something is there i don't know if they'll um believe it fully but but it's it's a good start right it's a good start sure. the second question was about our participation in the mass as a sacrifice it seems that the Mass is the renewal of the covenant, the conditional agreement between two parties, and Christ is the sacrifice that seals the deal. Do we renew our part in the covenant every time we receive the Eucharist? So the question is basically asking whether and how we participate in the sacrifice of Christ, which is the new covenant. We can, we can, if, 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 if we want to, right? Um, certainly, I think that's um, certainly I think that's the great opportunity in mass is to make not only to uh, not only to offer ourselves back to Christ, but to unite our offering to Him. And so, I, I think a key line in the mass, which is. Um, in every Mass, and often I think perhaps overlooked, is when the priest turns and says, um, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father, right? What does that mean? Well, <laughs> what's, it's, 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 what sacrifice is it? It's Jesus' sacrifice, as Marilyn points out very well. Um, it's the priest's sacrifice, right? Acting in persona Christi, in the, in the place of Christ, but it's also the sacrifice of everyone who's there, right? my sacrifice and yours. So that sacrifice means that Jesus' sacrifice becomes something that we offer to the Father as members of his body. At every Mass, you offer to the Father the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's how powerful the Mass is. But also you can unite your own sacrifice, the sacrifice of your prayer life, the sacrifice of your, um, of your effort to be a good Christian, the sacrifice of your sufferings, right? Um, to that to that mass and it becomes part of Jesus's own offering to the Father. So yeah, I think uh, the opportunity for us to renew the covenant and to and to kind of make ourselves part of Jesus's covenant is there. Whether we do it or not explicitly is kind of uh, up to us, right? The next question was, how can we simplify and explain these concepts to our children? <laughs> That's always the hard question. Uh, yeah, it's not that hard, right? I think children, children aren't complicated, so they don't, they, you know, they don't worry about it too much. You just tell them, right, that, that during Mass, uh, you hear the bells, you know, that's, Jesus is coming, right? The angels are everywhere. Um, there's Jesus. I think, you know, taking children to a church when no one's there is important to genuflect and Show them the tabernacle and say, that's Jesus' house, right? That's where Jesus lives. That's all true, right? And, and kids get it. Um, kids get it. 
Um, I remember hearing from, uh, I know a, a, a good priest, he's, uh, he's 91 now in a nursing home, bad health. But one of the things he did during his priesthood was he pushed for, in New Jersey where he was from, uh, he pushed for the sacraments for mentally, um, mentally challenged kids, right? Uh, mentally handicapped kids. And so they started this CCD program and people would bring kids from all different parishes to train them in, um, in the sacraments. And one day this kid was missing. They didn't know where he was. And, um, and so they were looking all over him for him and they were worried. And then finally, this priest went to the church and he found this kid kneeling in front of the sacrament, right? And he was saying, you know, in his, in his kind of mentally impaired way, his voice, right? You know, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. Right? And so, you know, he said, these kids, can, these kids know uh, uh, what's going on. So, we, you know, he was kind of, you know, um, he was uh, encouraged by that for what he, for his, for his um, work, right? That this kid knows that Jesus is here. And so that, therefore this kid can receive, <laughs> receive the blessed sacrament. The following question was, although Jesus told us to eat his body, the host, and drink his blood, the wine, does having the host only suffice for that requirement? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so for, for, um, for many different reasons in the church, uh, the tradition was for centuries uh, for the laity uh, just to receive the host. And that's absolutely fine. There's no obligation at all to receive under both species. Some people only receive under the species of, of uh, the wine, or they only receive the blood because of celiac disease or, or other, uh, other problems. But yeah, if you receive, if you receive um, under either species, you're receiving the whole Christ, right? So nothing is missing. The next question asked me to explain spiritual communion and a little bit how it differs from communion. So spiritual communion is, is expressing a desire to receive Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament in which we receive him spiritually. Now, that's great. That's great, especially if you can't, if you, especially if you can't uh, receive him sacramentally. But it's not the same thing, right? Uh, and so I think it's a great devotion. It helps our, it helps our real communions to build up this, this desire to receive him um, sacramentally. It tells Jesus um, our, our wish to receive him. It invites him, like you said, into our heart, into our soul, and that works. Um, but it's not at all uh, a substitute for the sacrament, right? Because to say that would be like to undercut everything we just said in this whole, <laughs> this whole talk, right? That, yeah. The final question asked me to comment on the exchange of the human will for the divine will at the offertory in the mass right before the Eucharistic prayer. Right. I think that's what, you know, um, I was trying to say before, well, similar, um, you know, my sacrifice and yours, right? And so that's right after the, precisely the preparation of the gifts, right? Um, and so, yeah, the whole thing of like putting, putting our life and, our will and our loved ones and our work and everything on the patent, right? To unite it to 
to our Lord and our, yeah, our wills is, whew, that's one of the best things we can put there. Sure. Beautiful. Thank you, Anne. Father John, I'd like to just thank you very much. Your, your presentation was so inspirational, very informative. I think like Anne said, um, it gave us a toolbox, a lot of things we can go back to and think about. And um, it's great when we're like dialoguing with friends or family members and it, and, and it helps us to better understand our own faith, which is, um, you know, part of the mission of our ministry. So thank you so much for that. My pleasure. It's been fun. Well, that was the class on the Eucharist. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I thank you once again for listening to Come Away By Yourselves. Let you know that I pray for all of my listeners and I appreciate also your prayers in return. God bless.